Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians? And at this time, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are in pre-K up through third grade, you can meet in the back. And uh, parents, if you have not yet signed your kids in and you're sending them to Children's Church, you can do that now. There's a, a little electronic sign-up in the back, and then you can pick them up after the worship service ends. Well, we are in the second to last sermon in a series we've been looking at in the book of Galatians. We've called this series Gospel Reset. Uh, we have been through some things. Amen? And I think when that happens, it, there is an opportunity for us to sort of hit Control-Alt-Delete on life and what we're thinking and what we're doing and our habits and attitudes and actions. And when we do, the thing that comes up on the screen first is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you ask me in a word, what is this church about? The answer is Jesus. We are saved by his grace through faith. It is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This book, the book of Galatians, is essentially a book-length treatment of those verses from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. We're going to start at verse, actually, chapter 5, verse 25, and then we'll read through chapter 6 through 10. And keep in mind, too, that I think that verse 25, chapter 5, verse 25, really is sort of the theme verse that controls everything else that Paul says in the passage, okay? Let's take a look. Chapter 5, verse 25, and we'll continue on through 6, verse 10. This is God's word. Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers or brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. The one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is God's word. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is so simple and beautiful and profound and life-transforming. I pray, Lord, as we consider the implications of the gospel today, that you would give us great clarity of our understanding. May we remember your grace 
and may we be good to one another. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you love science? Anyone? Science? How many of you are involved professionally in some sort of scientific field? Anyone? A few of you? A few scientists here? Doc? Doctors, nurses, engineers, I guess architects, you got to make sure your building doesn't fall down. That's a scientific field. Well, I love science, but I love science the way I love music. I can listen, but I can't really play. Like many people my age, I grew up watching uh, Mr. Wizard on Nickelodeon and The Electric Company on PBS. Uh, like many of you, I took uh, chemistry and biology in high school. In college, I took a class, I kid you not, called Science as a Way of Knowing, otherwise known as Science as a Way of Graduating. <laughs> I did, by the way, so good news. I got a B in the class. Now, one thing that I do know about science is that when different chemicals and compounds come together, often there's a reaction. There's fizzing and bubbling and hopefully not exploding. Well, this morning we're going to talk about some of those gospel reactions. According to the Apostle Paul, the church is the laboratory of the Holy Spirit. The church is the place where gospel theories become gospel realities. Something happens when the gospel comes in contact with our families. Something happens, a reaction takes place, when the gospel comes into contact with our finances. The gospel creates unity. The gospel creates humility. The gospel creates personal responsibility and so much more. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Here's our game plan. We're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so talking about six ways that the gospel changes our attitudes and our actions. Six ways that the Holy Spirit empowers the church. Now, in the spirit of Mr. Wizard and my beleaguered high school science teacher, Mr. Kuiper, I am tempted to use visual aids, but the reality is that you and I, all of us here, are the visual aids. We are the body of Christ. We are what the world sees when the world looks intently for Jesus. The gospel changes everything. So how does that happen? What do those gospel reactions look like in the life of the church? First big idea. The gospel creates unity. The gospel creates unity. Chapter 5, verse 25. Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another let me say in the at the outset that a united church is worth its weight in gold amen 
it is absolutely soul-crushing if you are part of a body of believers where everybody's fighting and disagreeing all the time. It's anti-Christ. It's anti-gospel. According to the Apostle Paul, conceited people destroy churches. Combative people destroy churches. Envious people destroy churches. Why? Because if it's all about me, then it's not all about Jesus. You can only serve one master. Either you will glorify yourself or you will glorify him. It's one or the other. So how does the gospel create, whole, create humility? How does the Holy Spirit change conceited, combative, envious people into gospel people? Let's take a closer look. The gospel humbles conceited people. Conceited people believe deep down, I am the most important person in the room. Is that true? Are you ever the most important person in the room? Well, according to the Bible, the answer is no. You are not the most important person in the room because God is the most important person in the room. God is always the most important person in the room. God deserves all the glory. God deserves all the praise. There's one person who deserves the spotlight, and it's not me. It's God. Apart from the grace of God, I am nothing. Jesus died for me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Jesus died for me when I was God's enemy. The gospel isn't amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a genius like me. The gospel is amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. A sinner like me. A humble, broken down, blind, struggling person like me. And so, as Christians, our one goal in life, our ultimate goal, the goal of all goals, is not to glorify me. It's to glorify God so that we might enjoy him forever because he saved us. We owe him our love, our loyalty, our life, our everything. So how does the gospel change combative people? Well, for combative people, the issue is winning. I must win the fight. I must win the argument. If I don't get my way, I am taking my ball and going home. Did anyone ever say that when you're about nine years old? It's a little bit less cute when a 59-year-old says it to you, but I, I digress. That's what we would say when we played pickup football in the streets. There was always one kid who had the football, and he'd say, hey, listen, I'm either picking first or I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. What if I told you that it's okay to lose? What if I told you that it's okay if you don't win every argument? What if I told you that it's okay if you don't always get your way? Listen, I'm the pastor of the church. I don't always get my way around here. No one does. No individual person can say, that's exactly how I would do it. In every instance and every time, life just doesn't work that way. 
The gospel says, I can lose so you can win because Jesus lost so I can win. Jesus won by losing. That's the way of the cross. What about envious people? Well, envy says, I want what you have. I will not be happy until I am as rich, as popular, as successful, as handsome, as skinny, as athletic, as smart, as talented as you. The gospel says you can be happy right now. You're not missing anything. You're not lacking anything. In fact, you're rich. You're an heir of the kingdom of God. You are loved. Jesus died on the cross for you. You don't have to do anything or be anything that you're not. Jesus did it all. He gives us everything that we need. This week I've been reading my Bible, the one year uh, through the year Bible, and I came across one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And it's from an unlikely place, the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The gospel creates unity as we celebrate the person and work of Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about him. Second big idea. Not only does the gospel create unity, the gospel creates family. Chapter 6 Verse 1, brothers, brothers. The Greek word Paul uses here as a delphos, it could be and probably should be translated brothers and sisters, but the point is that Paul is using family uh, language to talk about his relationship with the, uh, the Christians in the church of Galatia. Now, that's very significant. Remember, Paul was Jewish, and most of the Galatians were Gentiles. The whole controversy in the church up until this point was centered around the question, can Jews and Gentiles call themselves brothers and sisters? Do the Gentile Christians need to do something in order to become part of the family of God? I'm a Jewish man. Can I call this Jewish a Gentile man, my brother. Or to put it in modern terms, I'm a black woman. Can I call this white woman my sister? I'm an Asian man. Can I call this white man my brother? Here's the answer. Paul is saying that Jesus makes us a family. Circumcision does not make us a family. Eating kosher and the kosher laws, that does not make us a family. Our race does not make us a family. Jesus makes us a family. Now, I've told this story a few times. Some of you have heard it before. But it is so beautiful and so spontaneous and gives me so much joy many years later that I'm going to tell it again. Back when I was 26 years old, I'm 44 years old now, Back when I was about 26 years old, I lived in New York City. 
I lived in a neighborhood called Washington Heights, which was north of Harlem. There's Washington Heights, and then Harlem, and then we kind of get into Morningside Heights and kind of get down by Columbus Circle and the park. So every day, on every Sunday on my way to church, I would have to take the subway, the A train, from my neighborhood in Washington Heights through uh, Harlem to the church, which was just below Harlem. And one day I got on the train, and I was at 125th, 145th Street. The train stops. This little old black lady gets on. It's Harlem. And she sits down, and she opens up her Bible. And I was so excited about this that I would see somebody reading the Bible on the subway that I stood up, and I went, and I sat right next to her, and I said, are you reading the Bible? Are you a Christian? I'm a Christian too. And her face lit up, and my face lit up, and we talked for the rest of the ride like we had known each other for years and years and years. It was incredible. Now, in case you've never been to New York, you should know that this sort of thing is just not done. You don't talk to strangers on the subway unless you're a panhandler or maybe schizophrenic, okay? And you just do not talk to strangers, but here we are like we knew each other our whole lives. When I got off the train, I thought to myself, this is my sister. We're part of the same family. We're not just friends here. We're not just members of some religious club where we get together once a week to hang out and sing songs and listen to the Bible. We're not just allies in the culture war. We're a family. Why? Because Jesus has adopted us into his family, the family of faith. In Ephesians 1, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The gospel creates a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Third big idea, the gospel creates accountability. Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any, transgr any transgression, you who are spiritual or spiritually mature should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, normally people have kind of a, a fight or flight approach to accountability in the church. Some people are fighters and some people are flighters. The fighters are people who want to go around finding every little sin that anyone has ever committed so they can hold them accountable, and they love it. The flighters say, I don't want to know, I don't want to see, whatever you're doing in your private life, it's none of my business, just please don't bring it in here. Fighters tend to be spiritual bullies, and flighters tend to be spiritual cowards. 
Now, full disclosure, just so you can know my pattern of sin, I tend to be a flighter instead of a fighter. A few years ago, there was a, a vote that came up in our presbytery. Uh, if you're not familiar with the lingo, presbytery is a regional gathering of churches. We're all kind of connected to one another. Well, they were going to vote to have a trial in the presbytery. They're going to put a guy on trial. Every single person voted to put the guy on trial. The guy who was going to be on trial voted to put himself on trial. There was one vote who voted against the trial, and it was me. <laughs> Just me. Now, I say that not because I'm proud of it, but to point out that I tend to sort of shirk back from conflict, and so I need the gospel in this area as much or more than any other person. Now, here's how the gospel changes the way that we think about accountability. To the, the flighters, people like me, the gospel says there has to be accountability. If someone you love is stuck in a pattern of sin, we have to get involved. We can't just stand on the sidelines and watch that slow motion train wreck happen without getting involved. It's unloving. It is not loving to allow someone to continue on in patterns of sin when patterns of sin are toxic to our souls, to our life. They separate us from God. It's terrible. It would be like if you had a child and you allowed them to play in the traffic and you just didn't want to say anything because you didn't want to get involved. That is not loving. The loving person says there must be accountability to the fighters, the gospel says there has to be gentleness. The goal of accountability, the goal of talking to someone about their sin is not judgment, it's not condemnation, it's restoration. The purpose is to restore the person to the fellowship of the faith. This morning, if you are in sin, a, a pattern of unrepentant sin, a, a pattern of sin where you feel like you're stuck and you can't get out, the message is, we want you to come home to the Good Shepherd. He loves you. He cares for you. You will find peace and rest and grace in the arms of Jesus. Come home. Do you see the balance? The gospel gives us an equal measure of toughness and tenderness. The gospel reminds us that sin is serious, so serious, in fact, that Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. It doesn't get more serious than that. But at the same time, it reminds us that grace wins. Grace wins. Because Jesus wins, and so there is forgiveness and hope in him. The gospel changes everything. Fourth big idea, the gospel creates sympathy. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you have any burdens? I have a few burdens. Many of us are, are burdened. We have spiritual burdens and emotional burdens and physical burdens, spiritual burdens. Some people hide their burdens very well. They come and say, we say, well, how are you doing this morning? And people say, I'm fine. Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. We kind of clean up very well. Others, not so much. 
Others, you can see the burden in their eyes. You can see the burden in the way their, their lips quiver, the way they look stressed out and anguished. The question is, what do we do with the burdens? Well, Paul says something amazing here. He says, we are to bear one another's burdens. So how do we do that? Christian love isn't theoretical. Christian love is practical because God's love is incarnational. Jesus came from heaven to earth in order to bear our burdens. We bear one another's burdens because Jesus bore our burdens, the burden of sin and death and condemnation and guilt and shame, on his shoulders on the cross. Peter says as much in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He writes, Jesus himself bore our sins. Do you hear that bearing language? He bore our sins on his body, on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Because Jesus bears our burdens, we ask, how can we bear one another's burdens? How can we help? Can I sit with you and listen? Can I sit with you and pray? Can I bring you a meal? Can I watch your dogs? Can I cut your bushes? Can I trim your grass? We bear one another's burdens. And as we do, we fulfill the law of Christ. We love our neighbors as ourselves. That gospel creates not merely empathy, where we say, I understand your burden. It creates sympathy, where we actually bear the burden on our own shoulders. That's painful sometimes, but that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Fifth big idea, the gospel creates responsibility. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bury his, bear his own load. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Paul just say that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens? Now it seems like he's saying, hey, listen, man, you got to bear your own burdens. It's up to you. Is he contradicting himself? The answer is no. He's simply saying that we all have responsibilities. I have responsibilities and you have responsibilities as parents, as husbands and wives, as students, as employers, as employees, as citizens, as members of the church. We have responsibilities to God and to one another. And so we are to carry our own burdens. Now this is very countercultural. I think it's fair to say that we live in a very individualistic culture. And so we tend to, we do not tend to take our responsibilities very seriously. We kind of have an attitude of, well, we're going to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, the way we want to do it, without really much consideration given to how our actions impact other people. The good news is that the gospel changes that. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we belong to God and we belong to other people. We have responsibilities as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He writes, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The world says, that's slavery. Jesus says, that's freedom. The gospel brings freedom. Galatians 5, 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. The gospel creates responsibility, personal responsibility. The gospel turns our duty into our delight. Sixth big idea, last one, the gospel creates generosity. Verse 6, let the one who has taught the word, that's you, share all good things with the one who teaches the word, that's me. Amen. Let's pass the uh, collection plate and we'll all get out of here, okay? No, no, there's more. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here's what Paul is saying. You can either invest your money in the kingdom of God, or you can invest your money in the kingdom of you. The kingdom of God is a much better investment because the kingdom of God lasts forever while the kingdom of you does not last forever. Now, is Paul saying that we should never spend money on our family and friends, that we should never take vacations, we should never buy nice cars or jewelry or clothing? No, he's not saying that at all. He's simply saying what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Freely you have received, freely give. He's saying what Jesus' brother James said in James 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God has given us the greatest gift in the world. He's given us everlasting life. He's given us a new beginning. He's given us new hope. And he sustains us each and every day. God meets all of our needs. When you understand that, whether you're rich or you're poor, you will become a generous person. The gospel creates generosity. Well, we're about out of time, so I just want to close with a word of encouragement from God's word, verse 9. Let's read it. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If you've got a pen, circle that, underline it, highlight it. God has been and continues to be so good to us. Be good to one another. Be good to your neighbors. Be good to your enemies. Be good to the church. Sow gospel seeds, and in the end, you will reap eternal life. God is good, and the gospel changes everything. Let's go to God in prayer.
O Lord our God, we thank you for the Spirit who takes the gospel and applies it to our lives in amazing, powerful ways. O Lord God, we pray that you would change us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, as your Spirit, which dwells within us, creates a new person in all of us here. And may we simply be good to one another. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.